Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for calling us here to, to be together as your people and giving us this opportunity now to hear from you. Thank you for these words that you've given to us, that these are words of life. We pray that your spirit would help us give us understanding and that our hearts would draw closer and closer to you. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, it was about uh, a little over a year ago that I started the application process to uh, eventually be hired here at Emmanuel. And when filling out the application, it was a very straightforward process where it asked me things like, uh, what were my former ministry experiences? What are the things that I enjoy doing? How do I align to Emmanuel's vision? And not surprisingly, there was also a question that asked, uh, what are your weaknesses? And I offered two. And I'm glad that neither of them were red flags or even yellow flags. Um, I'm grateful to be here serving you all um, since then. Uh, but it's never a, a pleasant experience to admit to your weaknesses. Right? Rather, we would uh, want to showcase our strength and how we have it all together in life. But our weaknesses, those are our liabilities. Those are things that we want to hide as best as we can. But in the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, weakness was something that was not avoided, but it was embraced. The people in this passage, uh, they had faith to be weak. And so today we're going to consider that faith and weakness. Uh, first, it looks foolish. Secondly, it's costly. And then lastly, it demonstrates true strength. So first, faith in weakness looks foolish. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the author he, uh, identifies a series of people uh, in the Old Testament who demonstrated remarkable faith. And one of them is Moses. Uh, he's the one who led the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, and then they eventually wander in the desert for 40 years. And a time comes when Moses transfers his leadership to Joshua, and it's at this point where the Israelites are now on the cusp of entering into the promised land. But there's one thing that's in their way, and it is the most fortified city in the ancient world at the time, Jericho. Now, before getting to Jericho, the Israelites, they had conquered two different kings. And so you might expect that Joshua and his generals, as they're preparing, uh, they would just use the same playbook that they had from before, but the complete opposite happens. Verse 30 says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So God, he commands Joshua to line up his troops in this really unusual way. First, there's a group of soldiers, there's a set of seven priests, 
There is the Ark of the Covenant, which was this wooden chest that was overlaid with gold. It, it held the Ten Commandments. It was uh, where the presence of God was for the people. And then rounding out the procession was a rear guard of soldiers. So you had soldiers, seven priests, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the rear guard of soldiers. And then each day, this entire procession would go out. They would go to Jericho, march around the city. The soldiers would be silent. The priests are blowing into their ram's horns. And then after one loop around the city, they would just go back home. And then the next day, they would line up the same way and do the same exact thing. And they did this for six days straight. Now, I, I have zero experience in, in the military, but it sounds like a really bad idea. There, there are no plans for, hey, let's get the battering rams out and just bust through the front door or try to dig a tunnel underneath or maybe, you know, survey the city walls and, and look for a soft spot that they could exploit to get inside. No, they just march around the city and then they go home. And maybe the Israelites themselves had doubts and, and second thoughts. You know, as they're walking around and marching around the city, the walls look no different than the day before. And maybe they're thinking, what are we doing? But on the seventh day, they circle the city seven times. And then on the seventh loop, Joshua gives an order for everyone to shout. Everyone shouts. And as the song goes, the walls came tumbling down. So the most fortified city in the land at the time gets decimated. And the Israelites, they take over Jericho. Now, even though the Israelites, they looked foolish and absurd, God never intended for them to be fools in the end, but to prove that he was their God that he was on their side with each seemingly foolish step that they took. And God's marching orders, they were an object lesson for Israel. What looked like weakness and vulnerability would not lead to their ruin. Even though they had already conquered a couple of kings leading up to this, God was reminding them that you don't always win by brute strength. And sometimes having faith like this can look like the most foolish thing ever. We live in a world where competency and strength are highly valued. But there are some of you who are so generous with your time and your resources that you just give and give to others, and you're not hoarding things for yourself. There are some of you who have faith to tend to your mental health by receiving therapy. And then in just a little bit, every week, before we take the Lord's Supper, we do something that is utter foolishness. We confess our sins. We take time each week to admit and highlight our weaknesses, not our strength. So faith and weakness, it can look foolish, but we'll also see, secondly, that faith and weakness is costly. 
verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, before the Israelites are, are marching around the city of Jericho, uh, Joshua, he sends two of his men to go into the city to survey uh, the city and the land there. And while these two men are in the city, they find the home of Rahab, who was a prostitute. And most scholars believe that Rahab's home uh, functioned more like a hostel, where there were travelers that came by through being able to spend the night. And this may have been how Rahab would have heard about the stories of Israel. Travelers might have shared stories of how Israel had their backs up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are flying towards them, but the sea parts, and they're able to walk across to safety. They might have shared stories of how the Israelites defeated these two Amorite kings, and now it looks like Jericho is next. And so when these two Israelite spies arrive at Rahab's home, the author of Hebrews says that she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But this act of hospitality was extremely costly for Rahab. Eventually, word gets out that there are these spies inside the city, and the king of Jericho sends his officials to Rahab's home, asking for her to give them up. But instead of obeying, Rahab lies to them. She diverts the officials' attentions elsewhere, and the spies are are able to stay safe and hidden. But what Rahab has just done is that in the eyes of the Jericho government, she has committed treason. But here in Hebrews chapter 11, and then also in the book of James chapter 2, Rahab is considered a noteworthy example of faith. So how do we make sense of all this? Right? She just violated one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is a complex issue, but one thing that I would like for us to, to think about. Uh, in Joshua chapter 2, where we find the story, Hebrews chapter 11, and then James chapter 2, Rahab is identified as Rahab the prostitute. And here in Hebrews 11, Rahab is the only one who is listed that has something added to their name. So there's Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, and then Rahab. But not just Rahab, her name, but Rahab, the prostitute. So we think about the cultural ladder of worth. Rahab was lower than the lowest rung. People used her body for their own selfish pleasure, having zero ounce of care for her. And Rahab probably saw some of her story in the Israelites. The Israelites, they knew all too well what it's like to be in bondage, to be taken advantage of to be treated as less than human. And then these Israelite spies, they show up, and who probably look no different than anyone else that's in her home, but somehow they are worlds apart. 
In Joshua chapter 2, where we find this story of Rahab, scholars point out that the text is very clear in saying that there was zero hint of sexual relation between the, the spies and Rahab. And so, perhaps for the very first time in our life, Rahab experiences what it's like to be treated as a woman of worth and not as an object of pleasure. She gets a glimpse of people who've been in bondage but are now free. And so when the king's officials ask Rahab, where are the spies, she has two options. Either tell the truth, remain in bondage as a prostitute, or lie and hope that there is liberation. And so Rahab chose the latter. Again, complex issue. But perhaps the biblical authors identified Rahab as Rahab the prostitute to let us know that she was no ordinary person. Telling the truth would mean bondage and death. Lying would offer a chance at life as it should be. So she leads the spies to another way out of the city. And just before they leave, she pleads with them that, they, that the Israelites would spare her and her family. And the spies agree to that, and they return to their camp. And this is when Rahab risked everything. You know, as a prostitute, she already was below the lowest rung on the ladder of worth, but after she lied, she put herself and her family at risk. What if the spies are caught? Then Rahab would have to pay for her act of treason. What if, in the course of their getting ready for their, their next move, the spies forget about the promise that they make? Rahab and her family are going to get wiped out. But despite the cost, Rahab demonstrated faith in weakness. She was a nobody in her world, and yet she acted in faith that rescue would come to her even before it came. And so faith in weakness is costly because you put yourself in this vulnerable position. You don't lead with strength and competency, but you lead with weakness and with humility. Uh, when I think about costly faith, I, I think about my mom. Um, you know, years ago, one of her best friends shared with me that she uh, graduated top of her class in college. Of course, my mom never shared this with, with us. Uh, she studied piano performance, and then she went on to Germany to study some more, and then she eventually ended up here in the city to study at the Manhattan School of Music. And, and while she was here, she got connected to a, a small Korean church in Brooklyn and joined the music ministry over there. And there was this unassuming tenor that caught her eye. And at some point, my dad and my mom, they got married. A year later, my brother is born. Two years after that, I was born. And then my mom decided to put on hold her career 
to be a stay-at-home mom for two boys and a husband with these bottomless stomachs. And even though she could have wowed the world at Carnegie Hall, she played, uh, she played piano every week for a no-name Korean church in Brooklyn. My mom put her faith not in her strength, even though she has amazing talents, uh, but in weakness, laying down her future as a professional pianist so that someone like me could flourish. My mom rarely talks about this, but I would think that this was one of the hardest decisions that she's ever had to make in her life. For the Israelites to march around Jericho and and wait for the walls to fall down probably wasn't easy for them. Rahab, risking her life and the life of her family, extending hospitality to these spies was utterly costly. But there's a common thread in all of these examples. In each one, what we see is people who are not weak and frail necessarily, but those who have demonstrated true strength. And that leads us to our final point. Faith in weakness demonstrates true strength. You know, if we think about it, it actually doesn't take much effort for us to admit our strengths. But it takes all kinds of effort and courage to admit our weaknesses. It doesn't take much to say, I'm healthy. But it takes strength to say, I have cancer. It doesn't take much to say, I aced that exam. But it takes effort and strength to say, I don't have enough credits to graduate. It doesn't take much to say, we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. But it does take strength to say, we're going through a separation. doesn't take much to admit our strengths, but it takes all kinds of effort and courage to admit our weaknesses because deep down inside of us, we know we're not that strong. We know we're not that competent. We know we're not that put together. We know that there are things that are true of us that if they were found out, people around us would see us as a bunch of failures and frauds. And so what do we do? Oftentimes we strive to become stronger, more competent, more put together. We do what we can to cover up our weaknesses. We try to compensate for our flaws. But friends, doesn't it get exhausting? Aren't there times when we're so tired because we know that there's no way that we can keep this up? And isn't it crushing when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we don't see strength, but we see weakness? We see failure. 
we see that we really don't measure up. So what do we do? Do we follow the examples of the Israelites and Rahab? Are we really ready to look absolutely foolish in the eyes of the world? Are we really ready to risk everything? But the point of the Israelites and of Rahab is not that they are examples to follow, but that they are part of a greater story of weakness demonstrating true strength. Because the day would come when Jesus, the Son of God, he would put aside his infinite power and strength, and he would become weak. He would come into our world as a vulnerable, weak baby boy. And then during his ministry, he would face all kinds of opposition and mockery. Many would come to him and say, you're a complete fraud. Who are you to say that you're the son of God? You're from Nazareth. You say that you're the holy one, and yet you spend all time, all your time with the people who are the most pathetic in the world. But Jesus continued to live in weakness to demonstrate his strength. Because he would eventually go to die on the cross. He would give up his life. He died a real and true death. But the story of Jesus didn't end in weakness. Because on the third day, Jesus, he would rise from the grave. He would be in the depths of hell, and Jesus would resurrect to new life. And Jesus didn't do all of this to just show how powerful he is. He didn't rise from the grave to just conquer sin and death. Jesus became finite and limited and weak and naked and vulnerable. He died and rose from the dead to also rescue us from our weakness. Jesus, he did all of this so that our weaknesses would never be liabilities. Jesus did this so that when God sees us, he doesn't see a bunch of failures and frauds. But now, when God looks at us, he sees perfection. He sees beauty. He sees his wonderful children. And so when we're struggling with our weaknesses, when we're scared to be found out to be a fraud, when we're exhausted and crushed because we've lost hope, we can look to Jesus as the one who has brought us salvation, he's brought us life, he's brought us rescue. Through his life and death and resurrection, he has rewritten our story. We no longer live a story of failure, but instead we're invited to join in his story where Jesus constantly reminds us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
a story that says we can boast all the more gladly about our weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on us. And because of only what Jesus has done for us, we can now lean into our weakness instead of trying to avoid it at all costs. To the world, leaning into weakness might look utterly foolish. And there are times when doing so is utterly costly. But every time we lean into our weakness, We show the world that there's a story of good news where the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, set aside his strength, became weak, came to us as a human, gave up his life, but was raised again to show us that weakness will not have the final say. But through weakness, his power would be made perfect. Every time we lean into weakness, we show the beauty and the power of Jesus. And every time we lean into our weakness, we show the world that weakness is not a liability, but it's actually an occasion where God often shows up. And so as we live by faith to be weak, May we find strength in the one who became weak for us. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are weak and frail and exhausted. And God, the, the lives that, that we live, so often we, we, we want to cover up the things that, that we see as our liabilities. And yet, God, we know that we can't keep this up. But God, thank you that you, you know that this is true. And you knew that it would take everything for this story of ours to be rewritten so that we would know a true story of life. So God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that he would offer up his strength, become weak, so that we would know what it means to be strong, to be looked at in the eyes of God, and to be seen as beautiful and as righteous and as your children. And so, Father, I pray that we will continue to look to Jesus as we continue to struggle with our weaknesses, to know that these no longer mark who we are, but that we have been washed over with the blood of Jesus, that we are clothed with with his righteousness. And God, may we have faith to be weak, knowing that this is a beautiful witness to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.